let's jump in, open up your, your insert. You're just going to see a lot of words, a lot of Bible passage. We're technically no longer in Advent, but we use the four Sundays in Advent studying creation, the image of God, the fall, and redemption. So basically Genesis 1, 2, 3, and a little bit more in 3. And we, we use that as a launching pad now to continue for at least half of the next year surveying the entire Old Testament. So we're going to spend a lot of time looking at the narrative of the Old Testament, what's the point of the Old Testament, what do I do with Israel, what is all of this stuff, the Hebrew people. Um, so I'm excited about it. And so this morning, I have the task of teaching four chapters of the Bible, Genesis 6 through 9, what's commonly called the flood, the flood story. And um, I'm going to do my best. So let me start with a question. Did the Bible steal? Did the Bible steal? So uh, I, I got my undergrad at uh, IUPUI down here in the city. I studied religion with a number of great guys and gals as professors who taught me the Bible, and I'm not sure any of them are Christians, um, so that was exciting. But that, that question was always posed to me. Did the Bible steal, especially connected to Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and the flood story? Why are they asking that question? Well, because there are other creation stories in the ancient Near East. There are other stories of a flood. So did the Bible just come along late in the game and just take and hijack some flood stories and bring it into their own? Some of those people were the Sumerians, the Akkadians, the Babylonians. You may even have heard of another one of these flood stories, the Epic of Gilgamesh. I think Roger mentioned a number of weeks ago, if you're having trouble sleeping, you can dig into that one. Um, that's, that's, a, that's a fun story. But all these ancient peoples have flood stories. And the Bible comes along and offers a flood story. So did the Bible just steal from all of those? Many of my professors, many of um, a, a more progressive bent when it comes to believing what the Bible says and its claims, would conclude that yes, it did. And therefore, the conclusion is the Bible can't be trusted Moses probably didn't write these. There's likely not even a God, and if there is, we can't know him. Therefore, throw it all out. I want to offer to you maybe a more simple and better understanding, and that is, what if the flood actually happened? It's groundbreaking. What if something like this actually happened, a deluge, a flood actually happens, and that all of these different people groups are actually grappling with what historically actually happened and the theological implications of it. We're not sure, and the text doesn't explicitly tell us if this flood is a, is a huge global flood as we understand it. Was Moses even thinking about a globe? Did he even think there was a globe? Or is he thinking more in terms of like everybody that he sees and knows, the whole known world? And even if we grant that it's that, the latter, think about the people I just talked to you about, all the, all the way down to Egypt, to Babylonia, Sumeria, Acadia, the, the ancient Hebrew people, the, the, the eastern seaboard of the Mediterranean. That is a ton of area. The whole known world at the time wiped out by a flood. And all these ancient people groups wrestling with what and why and how. There are similarities, but there are a lot of dissimilarities. Is that a word? There, there, are, there are differences. And a lot of those differences we're going to hit this morning as we're looking at the biblical story of the flood, which I believe and argue to be the, the true story of the flood. So, what I'm proposing to you 
is the flood story, the flood of God's judgment from Genesis 6 through 9, is an historical reality. It happened in space and in time. It happened here. But that Moses is emphasizing a number of theological truths in his retelling of this true story and this true event. We could spend multiple weeks looking at all of these theological truths, but I've only drawn out four. We'll likely not even get to all of those. Okay, we're going to be exploring, one, the corruption and sin of mankind, very clear in the story, the way in which God deals with human sin simultaneously through judgment and mercy, decreation and recreation, and lastly, the theme of covenant, the way God works with us, the way God is in relationship with us through what the Bible calls a covenant. So, We're not going to read all four chapters of this, but since uh, the Bible does call us, call me to the public reading of Scripture, I would like to read all of chapter 6. And so, as we often do, let us stand for the reading of God's Word from Genesis chapter 6, and then I will just make a few comments from 7, 8, and 9. So, Genesis chapter 6. When man began to multiply on the face of the land... And daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the whole earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing, 
of the ground, according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also, take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. What happens after this is that it happens. God uh, goes on to tell them to bring not only two of all the animals, but multiple pairs, because they're going to be on the boat for a while. Some may die. And after they get off the ark, uh, Noah and his family have a worship service where they sacrifice some animals to the Lord. There needed to be more than just one pair of, of everything. The flood comes at the end of chapter 7. The flood subsides in chapter 8. That's where you get the raven sent out. They get the dove sent out. The dove comes back, can't find dry land. Another dove comes out, comes back with a branch. Then the dove comes out and finds a home. They exit the ark, worship service, chapter 9. Noah makes, or God makes a covenant with Noah. Okay, so we're going to highlight those briefly. Um, but what is going on at the beginning of chapter 6? Many of you in our e-news and last week in the insert, you saw that Genesis 6 through 9 was the topic of discussion today. And uh, you s- I've received more emails and texts than ever before. Uh, it's not very many, but still ever before leading up to a sermon. Are you going to talk about verses 1 through 4? Yes. Um, there's been much ink spilled on this strange section, Genesis 6, verses 1 through 4. Um, sons of God, daughters of men, the Nephilim, if you've been reading an older translation or grew up with like the King James or something, it says the giants, the word just means Nephilim, it's just a people group, the I-M is the English S, it's the plural, Nephilim, the people, Nephilim. Um, they're associated in Numbers 13 with giants, and so that's where it's inserted back into this that these are giants. They seem to come from whatever relationship is going on here with sons of God, daughters of men. But the point being that this section highlights the first theme that I want to talk about this morning, the sin and corruption of humanity. Verses 1 through 4, this strange section, again, I think there are a number of possible interpretations. There's two really popular ones that come to the forefront. I just want to briefly tell you about these two. The first, they take the sons of God to be the sons of Seth. Who is Seth? Well, you might recall, a number of weeks ago, we looked at Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, our first parents, have two children, Cain and Abel. Cain becomes a wicked man who, in cold blood, kills his brother Abel. Cain and Abel are also um, types of the, 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 um, the seed of the serpent, the line of the serpent, evil, and the seed of the woman, the righteous and godly line. But what happens now that Abel, the good guy, the righteous one, the godly line, is dead? What is going to happen? Well, Adam and Eve have another son. His name is Seth. And so we have this continuation of the wicked line of the serpent and the the good line of the woman. And there will be enmity. There will be war between these two lines all their days. And so what is going on? The sons of Seth... And the daughters of Cain are intermarrying. The godly, righteous sons of Seth see that the daughters of Cain, who are on the wicked team, and take them, and there's intermarrying between the the, the good and righteous and the non-God-fearers. Maybe. 
The other popular interpretation, I tend to lean this way, but then again, tomorrow I could wake up and I like the one I just explained to you. I don't know. But the other really popular one is that the sons of God are angels of some sort. Again, this is going to get a little weird. Bear with me. The sons of God are some sort of a fallen angel that rebel against the Lord while the daughters of man are human women. And so that what we're having is a rebellion in the heavenlies just like we had a rebellion on earth in the garden. The main weight of this is that the earliest Jewish writers took this interpretation. If you want to really nerd out, you can read about it in First Enoch, the Book of Jubilees, the Septuagint, Philo and Josephus, and the Dead Sea Scrolls all take that route, as well as the earliest Christian writers, Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, and Origen. But the meaning being that while humans can be called sons of God, um, it's far more often that these sons of God are speaking about angels. Job 1, verse 6, Job 2, verse 1, Job 38, verse 7, Daniel 3, verse 29, 25, just to name a few. The sons of God there are certainly angels because they're in the presence of God. There could be evidence, arguably, in 1 Peter 3, verses 19 and 20, 2 Peter 2, verses 4 through 6, and Jude, Jude 6, that these are talking about some kind of angelic being. And that they are, again, somehow marrying and with daughters of men, like human women. How does this work? I don't know that answer. Just that that has been the, the, the common interpretation. But the, the, the bigger point is that we're supposed to feel wickedness on display here. So, uh, Derek Kidner is a really smart commentator. And I ha- he has these words to say. I think they're helpful. So let me just quote. The point of this cryptic passage, whichever way you may take it, is that a new stage has been reached in the progress of evil with God's bounds overstepped in yet another realm. He goes on to conclude, whichever way we land on this, humanity is beyond self And what's more common is that maybe that sounds a little strange. Fallen angels, human daughters, that's a little strange. It's probably because of our untrained 21st century ears not thinking and reading like an ancient person. But again, regardless of how you interpret this, what's going on here is that corruption has spread. The fall of Adam and Eve has influenced those who came after them. Look at verse 5. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in, all, in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Okay? So it's very likely that whatever's going on here, whichever way you take it, there is a darkness, maybe even a, a demonic presence on earth that is helping this evil spread. The flood wipes out the known world, and then following things, Noah and his family restart creation, and things continue to go downhill. But we're never told that it's this bad, except in a few occasions. So it's almost like throughout the the ages of redemptive history and even in our history that there are periods of time where wickedness and evil are heightened. As you're a Bible reader, this is definitely the big one. But then it's not too long before you arrive at the beginning opening chapters of Exodus and you're hearing about an evil, wicked Pharaoh drowning babies and killing them in an attempt to squash this coming prophet named Moses. 
then we get a little bit of peace. But then later on you see the Hebrew people turning from the one true God, Yahweh, and worshiping the other gods of the lands and sacrificing their children to the false gods. You may even be thinking about this Advent series or the Advent period of time. And if you've done any Advent reading on your own, you know about Herod and the family of Herod. Maybe with some heightened extra evils, killing babies to try to squash the king of the Jews who is to come. In our day and age, you may even be thinking about genocides that we've read about, maybe even seen in our lives. Thinking about the Holocaust. Wickedness and evil on full display that doesn't mark every period of history, but some extra wickedness, some extra darkness, dare I say maybe some extra demonic things. Principalities and powers having an extra hold at certain times in history. That's what's going on here. And it's not just a few people off in the corner over there being like extra wicked and the rest of us are just really good worshiping the Lord. It is pervasive. Everyone has turned away from the Lord except this one family which we'll read about in a little bit. So let's get into the second theme now which I've already hinted at. And that is divine judgment and divine mercy. Or to put it another way, divine judgment and salvation. And specifically, even as we're going to see through the ark, it's almost salvation through judgment. This is a major theme not only here, but in uh, other parts of the Old Testament and a theme in the life of Jesus, which we'll conclude with this morning. But look at, in your insert, on the right-hand side, I put Genesis 7. Specifically, look at verses 17 through 24. This is heavy. This is weighty. It would be a little odd if I talked about this and smiled and was really joyful. We're supposed to feel this as readers. This isn't good. This is weighty. This isn't the, the kids' storybook Bibles where Noah and the family are in mock robes and uh, giraffes and elephants are getting on, like holding Noah's hand. Everybody's smiling and the sun's out. This is dark. This is weighty. This is divine judgment. Look at verses 17 through 24. This is when the floodwaters come, the flood is happening. Verse 21, all flesh died that moved on the earth. You can imagine the beginning of this for those outside the ark. Mom, Dad, are we going to see anything other than rain? It's been raining for like two days, three days already. The answer is no. Everything on the dry land, verse 22, in whose nostrils was the breath of life, died. God blotted out every living thing. It's heavy. What's going on here? That darkness, that wickedness, that corruption that I was talking about must be dealt with. Humanity, maybe, depending on how you take the beginning verses of chapter 6, even angelic hosts have rebelled against the Lord. But God is just, righteous, and good. And because He is. Because He is just, righteous, and good, sin must be dealt with. He doesn't just sweep things under the rug, doesn't just turn a blind eye to sin. Because to do so would actually diminish His justice and His righteousness and His goodness. Humanity has done this. They've asked for this. Wickedness is pervasive, and God is executing good justice. Even if we don't really understand at all. I think the flood story corrects two errors in our thinking. I'm actually just going to tell you one. 
One main error, and and maybe you felt it as I was reading this, as I'm talking this morning. I've certainly felt it this week as I'm studying this. That error is this. God is overreacting. God is overreacting. Come on, it's just sin. Just a little sin. Like Everybody drowns. Growing up uh, in the church we visited once in a while, the, the nursery had a mural of the, of the ark. Unfortunately, the ark wasn't at the top of the, the room with all of the dead bodies underneath. No, it was all happy, hunky-dory. Why, is, why do we think God is overreacting? Well, I think it's because we either minimize sin or we misunderstand God. The first problem of minimizing our sin is, is like this. Imagine... Imagine you come home from either a long day at work or you're just out. You come home, there's some windows out, busted, and the door's ajar, and you're kind of like, okay, this isn't good. You, you re-enter your home, and one of your loved ones is on the ground in a pool of blood. And the bad guy or bad gal is standing over them. Adrenaline certainly kicks in, and you, you go to work. You tackle this man, hold him down. I'm just going to go with man, but it could, it could be a woman. You're holding him down. P- call the police. Police come. Take the bad guy away. Whew. Injustice, murder, violence has been done. Judgment day comes for this villain. You show up in court. As hard as it is for you to be there, to, to, to hear the verdict rendered by the judge. But little did you know the judge is having a good day. He got up early and crushed it at the gym. He had a great breakfast. He's got a little bounce in his step. He's feeling good today. It's been a good morning. And so inside the uh, throne room, inside the the courtroom, he he sits on his seat, and he says, I'm a good judge. I've never messed up anything. I've been good and righteous in my my renderings of, of these verdicts. But today, I'm feeling gracious. It's been a good morning. I'm I'm feeling good. And so, criminal murderer of your loved one, go free. Go free. What are you thinking in that moment? That is unjust. It's not right. That's wicked. He, he, He may even be just as bad as the bad guy. And yet, that's what we're doing every time we misunderstand our sin. That's what we want God to be like. That judge in the courtroom, just calm down a little bit, all right? It's, it's not that bad. It's just a, a little lust. It's just a little lie. We even call it that, a white lie. Just like a little one. It's not like a big sin. It's just, no. We're misunderstanding. We're wanting God to be like that judge in the courtroom, but that judge in the courtroom is a wicked man or woman. We're minimizing our sin. We're failing to recognize that our sin, whether word or deed or thought, is yes, against one another and can hurt others, but it's first and foremost an affront to God. And because he's good and righteous, he has to do something about it. And this is how he has chosen to deal with it in this uniquely wicked age of the pre-flood humanity. But the second way... Not only do we misunderstand sin and what it is, we also misunderstand that our sin is, like I just said, first and foremost against God. And our misunderstanding is in who God is. He's not like us. He is distinct. He is holy, all-powerful, majestic, beautiful, wonder, wonderful in every way, and our sin is against Him. And so if I take a rock and smash your car, that's not very nice, is it? 
to use the words in, in our home, I should get a discipline for that. Maybe a misdemeanor. I certainly have to pay you back. But it's not good, right? If I throw a rock against your house, it's a no-no. If I throw a rock at, at the White House, that's a felony and I do time. What's the difference between your house and that house? It's not the architecture alone. It's the person in it. No offense. That person's more important than you, I guess. But you see the difference. And if, if that's the difference just between your house and, and the White House, imagine the difference between the White House and God's house. Well, the creator of the universe who spoke all things into existence, and our sin is like throwing rocks at his house. We're misunderstanding the object against whom we sin. When we get those a little right, I'm not saying we're going to understand all of the flood narrative, but we're going to be able to, to track a little bit better when we see our sin rightly in light of God's goodness and justice and holiness. Oh man, we got to move. We also see not only judgment in the flood, that's Genesis 7, but we see God's patience. We see God's mercy. We see it in a couple of ways. Very briefly, follow with me. I'm going to start talking very fast, if I haven't been talking fast already. Genesis 6, 3. It's kind of a weird verse. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. Okay, so some people have thought that like, that's God saying after the flood, it's going to be hard to live 120 years. It's possible. It could be, that could be a fine interpretation. It's a little odd because a bunch of the Bible characters right after this live past 120. You could get out of that by saying, well, it's just a slow, gradual decline toward 120 years. Maybe that's what's going on there. Maybe not. Equally popular in commentaries is because of the original Hebrew in Genesis 6, as well as the flow of chapters 1 through 11, that this is actually talking about the flood. That God is saying, I am going to wipe out all breath. What, how does he say the, the, the nostrils who have the breath of life. But I am going to tarry. I'm going to wait 120 years before that actually happens. I'm pronouncing it now. There is wickedness rampant on the earth, but I'm not going to take away life for another 120 years. I'm going to give people time to turn, to repent. And if and when they do, guess what? They will be on the ark with Noah. But how many people are on the ark? Eight. God's mercy could also be displayed for us in the reality that there is a Genesis chapter 6. Although it's a hard passage to understand, the fact that the Bible's not done in chapter 3. Creation, we're made in the image of God. We turn violently and say, forget you, Lord, we're doing it on our own. The fall. God would have been just as just and good to simultaneously make everybody who had ever lived and say, I'm done with you. Damnation. And our Bible is Genesis 1, 2, and 3. That's the end of the story. But that's not what happens. We know the whole story. God gives us a foreshadow of it in Genesis 3.15, which Roger preached last week, that he is going to pursue rebellious, fallen, and sinful man and women. He's going to come after us by grace and make us his own. And the rest of the unfolding of Scripture from Genesis 3 through the end of Revelation is a love story of God's redemption of us, his pursuit of us. Mercy is in the flood story. 
His mercy is probably most abundantly clear in Noah and his family. I've already hinted at this. But God sets his love and affection on Noah, Noah's wife, his three sons, and their wives, and says, I am going to preserve you through an ark. I'm going to keep you safe. Outside of the ark is all the chaos waters. It's kind of like the garden. Inside is safety and and God and salvation. But outside those walls or borders is darkness and chaos. He is going to preserve a line to deliver the ultimate deliverer, Jesus Christ, Son of the world, Son of God. Noah's certainly not perfect. He sins in a pretty grievous way in chapter 9, in an Adam-like way, we might say, where Adam sinned by eating, Noah's going to sin in drinking by getting drunk, but he is nonetheless called a righteous man. He's in step with the Lord. He's a man of faith. You heard it in verse 9. Noah is a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. He's a man of faith. And the very last verse that I read to you in 6.22, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. And that refrain is repeated at least three times in Genesis 7. Noah obeyed God. He listened to God. He trusted God. His obedience to make the ark and get the animals and get his family in the ark is all because he trusted God. He believed God. And if you want to read it later, that's exactly what Hebrews 11, verse 7 says. All right, I'm skipping my third point, which is the third theme of this passage, decreation and recreation. I'm skipping it uh, just for time's sake, but what I'm saying here is that Moses is doing something specific. He's using creation language from Genesis 1 and undoing it. And that's what the flood stories are. Just like God separated the waters from Uh, up and below and the waters from the earth, now he's just releasing it. He's undoing creation. The water's coming down from there, up from the bottom, all around, chaos waters. Creation's being undone because God is starting over with new creation, a new Adam uh, named Noah. So if you want to jot that down, look at verse uh, 7-11. Genesis 7-11, as well as the opening verses of Genesis 8. We even see the, the the Ruach, the Spirit, or breath of God hovering over waters. Sound familiar? It's all kinds of good stuff. But the fourth and final theme I want to give us this morning is covenant. I would be remiss if I did not at least mention that covenant is a big deal in the flood story with Noah. Because it's a big deal with the whole story of Scripture. We at New City are, uh, talk about covenant a lot. We talk about covenant theology. We call, call our children covenant children. We sing the covenant song. The, na- the, the theme of that banner right there is covenant. The school of our denomination is covenant seminary. You can get, the, get what I'm laying down here. Covenant's kind of a big deal because that is how God deals with us. That's how God enters into a relationship with us, a covenant. What is that? Well, simply put, it's a contract that sounds a little cold. It's an agreement between two parties. In the Bible, a superior party and a lesser party. Robert Booth is a, a writer, pastor, theologian who defines a covenant this way, speaking of the, the biblical covenants, and I think it's helpful. He says, a covenant is a conditional promise, sealed by blood, sovereignly administered by God, with blessings for those who obey the conditions of the covenant and curses for those who disobey. So it's a conditional promise, sealed by blood, sovereignly administered, blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. It's in the garden with Adam. It's here with Noah. We're going to see it again 
uh, with Abraham, with Moses and Israel, with David, with Jesus and us in the new covenant. But it is one covenant. That's the big deal. That's what I want you to get. It's one story of redemption. Old Testament and new. One people of God. One story slowly unfolding throughout the Bible. A story of grace. And although there's one covenant, there's a different administrations of it, which I just mentioned those characters' names. They may look different at times, but it's one story of God's mercy and pursuing us. What that means for us is that that's how God deals with us. We are in covenant with God. If you are trusting in Jesus alone by salvation, for salvation, Jesus alone, you're in covenant with God. It's a promise to you, sealed by blood, the blood of the Son of God, Jesus, with blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. But unlike Noah, we're not in covenant with the Lord and therefore saved from floodwaters, signified by a rainbow, but we are spared from the judgment of our sin, saved through the ark that is Jesus and his blood shed for us, signified not by a rainbow, but by baptism and by what we're about to do at the table through bread and wine. And it's in Jesus that we see the ultimate portrayal of God dealing with sin through judgment and salvation, just like he did in Noah's day. Through Jesus, his righteous life and his substitutionary death on a cross and his glorious resurrection for us, God deals with our sin through judgment. Judgment was not spared. He's not like the courtroom judge who just says, ah, I'm going to turn a blind eye, sweep it under the rug. He dealt with your sin and my sin in Jesus so that the mercy that comes to us through Jesus is a mercy through judgment. And that is why Romans chapter 3 can say that God is both just and the justifier of the ungodly. Because he dealt with our sin, and because he did it in Jesus, he can say mercy to you. Oh, so much more. I'll conclude with the invitation to us. This ark, the word ark, is not unique. It is unique in the Bible. You might be thinking about the Ark of the Covenant that comes later, you know, the big chest that goes into the temple, into the tabernacle. You probably think of Indiana Jones. Um, It's not the same word. This word is only used one other place. You know where it is? In the craft that Moses floated on in the Nile. The basket, the boat, the ark. It is, it is a word in Noah's life and in, in Moses' life that signifies deliverance, safety from judgment and from death and from horror. And my question to you, brothers and sisters, and if you're visiting with us or even non-Christians visiting with us, this has been a strange passage, but what it points to is the question to us this morning, are you in the ark? Are you in the boat that is Jesus, safe from condemnation for sin, safe from judgment, safe from damnation, safe from death? Because the offer is to all of us in Jesus. Are you in the boat? Let me pray for us as we come to the table. Jesus, please use these words today and throughout the week to help us rightly understand our sin, but to rightly understand your mercy to us in Jesus. Jesus, you use the story of the flood to talk about another day that is coming, a day of judgment that is yet future. I pray that you would let us know deeply as we go to the table now that we are in the boat, 
Strengthen our faith in the blood of Jesus. And I pray this in your name. Amen.